Hello, I'm Jim Rowe of the International Monetary Fund. The world is experiencing the worst recession since the Great Depression. The crisis began less than two years ago in a tiny part of the U.S. housing market when riskier borrowers began to default on mortgage loans. But problems quickly spread to other financial markets in the United States and Europe. Credit dried up, and because the strong financial sector is vital to the health of the real economy, it wasn't long before the output of goods and services began to decline and unemployment began to rise. Global trade shriveled, and that spread the crisis to emerging markets and eventually to poorer countries. The IMF sees global output declining for the first time in more than six decades in 2009 and recovering only slowly in 2010. To combat recession, policymakers have used three basic approaches. Easing monetary policy to ensure there is enough liquidity in the system, cleaning up bank balance sheets to remove bad assets such as mortgage-backed securities to revive lending, and using fiscal policy, government spending and taxing, to compensate for declining demand for goods and services by consumers and businesses. In future broadcasts, we will examine restoring the health of the financial system and monetary policy. But today we will look at the role of fiscal policy in fighting a recession, generally called stimulus policies, and at the stimulus packages adopted by two major economies, the United States and China. We have with us today Paolo Mauro, a top official from the IMF's Fiscal Affairs Department and a lead author of a recent study of the effect of the crisis on public finances. Charles Kramer, who is in charge of the fund's North American division, and Stephen Barnett, a deputy in the IMF's China division. Paolo. There's been a lot of talk about government stimulus packages. The IMF has suggested that, on average, such packages should represent about 2% of economic output. What's the role of fiscal policy in fighting an economic downturn? Well, there's a wide consensus now that fiscal stimulus is necessary to get the world economy running again. With the sharp fall in private demand, the public sector has to step in and counteract the contraction in demand. And as you mentioned, the IMF has put forward an estimate of about 2% of GDP worldwide on average as the order of magnitude of a stimulus that would be appropriate. Now, it's important to stress the words on average. In fact, for many countries, certainly including the United States and China, and I'm sure we'll hear more from our colleagues today, large stimulus is appropriate. But it's also true that stimulus is not for everybody. Some countries may have no scope for stimulus, particularly in cases where they have already accumulated a lot of debt, their inflation may be too high, current account deficits may be too high, perhaps these countries don't have the ability to spend productively. Now, in terms of what we've seen so far, on the whole, for 2009, we estimate that fiscal stimulus worldwide is already almost two percentage points of output. Now, when it comes to the type of fiscal stimulus that works, Again, this may depend a bit on country circumstances, but I would say that public infrastructure has the appeal of translating into a lot of additional demand. And if instead countries are contemplating transfers or tax cuts, these should be targeted to groups that are cash-strapped, groups that are likely to spend fully the additional cash they receive from the government. Now, when we analyzed the composition of stimulus packages in a wide range of countries, we were struck by the diversity of approaches. Uh, Different countries did very different things, but also by the fact that no country put all of its eggs in one basket. So for each country, we found that several different measures were used, and 
Probably this is because nobody really knows exactly what works in these conditions. But this being said, there are some interesting patterns. What we have observed so far on average is about two-thirds of the fiscal stimulus has been in the form of increased spending, in particular with an emphasis on public infrastructure, transportation. And the remaining one-third has been on tax cuts, which have mostly gone to households. These have been cuts in personal income taxes, indirect taxes, value-added taxes. Well, then how important is it that these efforts be coordinated around the globe? Countries are sometimes reluctant to undertake fiscal stimulus because they know that part of the additional demand that would come from the stimulus would fall on foreign goods rather than on domestic goods. And this concern is especially relevant for small economies where the share of imported goods and services is higher. That said, this is a concern that one hears even in the United States or other large advanced economies. Now, it seems that when countries realize that all of their trading partners are also planning to provide fiscal stimulus, then that concern seems to be alleviated. That's a good thing, of course, because you don't want to be stuck in a situation where nobody wants to be the first one to move. Now, my personal impression is that a lot of progress has already been made, and Probably this is thanks in part to international dialogue and coordination. You talked about the countries that can't afford stimulus packages because of the impact on their public finance. What does having a large stimulus package or even a small stimulus package mean for public finances of countries around the world? What do countries do if they can't afford stimulus programs? Let me begin by pointing out that the implications of the uh, global financial crisis for the public finances of countries around the world are massive. This is a global crisis, and it's pretty clear that no country is unaffected. The impact so far has been most pronounced on the advanced economies, particularly those that have seen problems in their financial system and have had to intervene there. They had to incur major fiscal costs to provide government support to the financial system. They have lower tax revenues because incomes have fallen, profits have fallen, asset prices have fallen, so all of their sources of revenue have been hit. They have to spend more on unemployment benefits because jobs have been lost. And on top of that, they have to pay for the fiscal stimulus. So you put all of those things together you find that the increase in government debts as a share of GDP in advanced economies is now going to be the largest and the most pervasive after the Second World War. Now, we have observed very large increases in debts before, around World War I, World War II, in the Great Depression. But there are a number of features of the current situation that are unique. First, in addition to what we see in the large accumulation of public debts, we also have what we call contingent liabilities, namely all of the guarantees that have been provided in the financial system, deposit insurance, guarantees on interbank operations. All of these things were not there, certainly not to the same extent, in those pre-World War II episodes. The second unique feature of the current situation is that the explosion of public debts is coming on top of pre-existing challenges, in fact, greater challenges, those related to population aging. Think about the cases of pensions, health care, 
so for the advanced economies, the, the impact has been massive. For the emerging markets, here I think of the case of China for sure, but many of the large emerging markets, the impact has been smaller. And the channel there has been mainly through lower revenues that are falling because of lower economic growth. And for some of the commodity-producing emerging markets, because commodity prices have fallen. So where does that take us? You started out by saying that at this point, perhaps there are some countries that cannot afford fiscal stimulus. In fact, there are some countries that started out with high debts even before the crisis and therefore cannot afford stimulus programs. In addition, many emerging markets are facing difficulties financing themselves. And this is through no fault of their own. What's happening is that global investors are retreating away from emerging markets en bloc, in some ways almost without paying a lot of attention to country-specific policies and fundamentals. Whatever the reason, uh, there are some countries that are not going to be able to afford stimulus programs. So in those cases, the focus needs to shift to the quality, to the composition of the budget making sure that the poor and vulnerable groups receive adequate support. And then you have the countries that are truly in a crisis situation. For those, financing in the context of programs supported by the IMF and the international community more generally is one way of cushioning the blow from the global financial crisis. Charlie, let's take the United States. Its stimulus program is huge. What has it done, and what effect will there be from all the money that is being spent? Well, Jim, as you mentioned, it's, uh, it's uh, big money, um, it's over $700 billion over the next uh, 10 years, and most of that we'll see materialize in the next couple of years. Over the next three years or so, we'll see about uh, $650 billion of that. And I, I think there's some, uh, some elements of what Paolo was mentioning in terms of a very diverse package. Uh, about 40% of that money is in the form of tax cuts, tax relief to, uh, to working families, uh, low-income families uh, with children, tax credit for education, first-time home buyers, that kind of thing. And there's also aid to states and aid for education. I think one of the things we've seen in this recession, uh, as you might know, a lot of states have balanced budget um, arrangements, so their budgets have been squeezed, so they've had to cut, uh, cut spending. So aid to states for Medicare and other, other types of programs will, uh, will help to loosen those constraints. Uh, it's about 30% of the package. There's also some support for, uh, for unemployment insurance, uh, for health insurance of the unemployed. That's about 15% of the package. And the rest is in form of uh, infrastructure spending for roads, bridges, uh, information technology, and, and things like that. And I, I think, as, as you said, we'll see a variety of effects, actually, on the economy. The tax cuts will put more money in people's pockets. That's really important, given the rise in unemployment that we've seen and, and the pressure on wages. Aid to states, as I said, will help to loosen the budget constraints uh, for states, a lot of... Uh, Social spending, for example, is implemented at the state level, so that'll be helpful. Again, uh, with unemployment rising and uh, people under pressure in the households, I think the help for unemployment insurance will be a good support to families. And finally, the infrastructure spending will have, have two effects. First of all, there's an immediate effect, right? Obviously, the people employed in those sectors will have, have higher income, and they'll, they'll spend more, and there'll be spillover effects to the economy. And, and to the extent that we're strengthening the capital structure of the economy, that's one of the backbones of growth in the longer run. That should also help growth. Well, not only is the U.S. pumping money in its stimulus program, which is $700 billion, as you said, it's also spending a lot of money 
to clean up its financial system. What's the long-run impact going to be of all this spending? Well, we think there's an important short-run impact, too. I mean, a big element of the, the crisis that we're in now are these strains on the financial system, on the banks and the other, other elements of the financial system. And that's had a big impact on growth. I mean, you think about it, when household, someone in a household wants to buy a car or buy a house, they need access to credit. When corporations have to make inventory or payroll or buy machinery, they need to borrow from the banks and from the capital markets. And we've seen those banks and markets under a lot of strain recently. And some of the steps that have been taken, like giving money to the banks for capital uh, to support capital markets, are helping to, to loosen some of those constraints. And, and for sure, there's, uh, there's more that remains to be done in putting the banks on a, a stable footing and uh, putting the markets back uh, fully in private hands. And uh, we think that's an essential part of the package, along with fiscal policy and monetary policy, to get growth on a, a strong footing again. And in fact, to the extent that the financial sector can be fixed and, and put on a strong footing, those kinds of policies, fiscal and monetary policies, are going to be much more effective than they otherwise would. Steve, China doesn't have the same types of financial system problems as the United States and Europe, but is still facing a slowing economy. What is it doing in terms of fiscal stimulus, and why is its economy slowing so much? I think Paulo intimated that it was in part due to revenue declines. Is that the, the main reason? Thanks, Jim. First, we're very encouraged by China's fiscal stimulus. The managing director of the fund has been arguing for stimulus around the globe from countries that have the capacity. I think here China is really leading by example through its strong and prompt fiscal response. It announced last November a headline-grabbing 13% of GDP package that they started to implement immediately and that would continue through 2010. But if I may, I'd like to actually start the story a little bit earlier you look back, China has the room to act forcefully now, in large part because it followed responsible and prudent fiscal policies for many years. So coming into this situation, China has low government debt. They actually had a budget surplus in 2007. This actually was hard work. And in particular, since the Asian crisis, we've seen a, a doubling of the revenue-to-GDP ratio in China. So basically now China and the people of China are reaping the benefits of their hard work, and they have the space for a more forceful fiscal response. So what are they doing? If we look at what's in the stimulus package, it appropriately targets infrastructure and social expenditure. And indeed, the largest share goes to infrastructure spending, including the reconstruction in areas that were damaged by the Sichuan earthquake. But if we look at the more recent policies, we've also seen efforts to substantially increase spending on health care, boost job creation, and lower the tax burden all of these measures which will help improve the livelihoods and hopefully also raise consumption in China. Well, Steve, then what's the effect of these measures going to be on growth in China? Actually, the, we think the government's fiscal response is going to provide a valuable boost to growth in China that's going to help China weather this global economic crisis. Indeed, actually, we can see that these measures are already working. If we look at some of the what we call high-frequency data, some of the recent data on investment, we see signs that the stimulus is, is already kicking in. I should add that China's not immune from the crisis. You know, if we look, we've seen a fall in, in China's exports in recent months. There's a good example that China is being hit by the crisis. And we project growth to slow considerably this year to around half of the 2007 growth rate, which was, a, a, albeit high, at 13%. But the reason that China's holding up relatively well is due to the aggressive fiscal stimulus. If we kind of step back a bit, if we look beyond just the impact of growth in 2009, this fiscal stimulus in China can also play a role in strengthening growth in the long term. To do this, it should try to help China to rebalance growth. This means making growth 
less reliant on exports and investment, and more reliant on household consumption. So in this regard, measures aimed at boosting consumption have a double payoff. They both boost growth in the short term and help to rebalance the economy and thus sustain growth in the medium term. The government is indeed doing a lot in this direction, but even more could be done. Examples of such measures include strengthening the social safety net, helping those hurt by the slowing economy, and improving the health, education, and pension systems. Paulo, I assume that the long-term risk of these stimulus programs is inflation, as more and more money gets spent and, and debts incurred. How will countries know whether their stimulus programs, A, are enough, and B, when it's time to pull the plug so it doesn't become too much? As you suggest, it's kind of a balancing act. Uh, on the one hand, you want to avoid the risk of a prolonged recession. So you want to fix the financial system. You want to provide fiscal stimulus. And this involves large fiscal costs. On the other hand, you want to avoid the risk of incurring so much debt that markets start questioning whether the government will ultimately be able to service its obligations. Now, you're right that if the accumulated debts are perceived as too large, then investors might worry that they could be reduced by inflation or by default. And I think I agree with you that in the hypothetical or also hypothetical if situation of an advanced economy that has a very large debt and for some reason needs to reduce that debt in a disruptive way, then the mechanism would be inflation rather than default. But in terms of uh, market indicators of expected inflation, if we look at those right now, I think they're not going to be very informative because all of the discussion is about, if anything, deflation rather than inflation. Inflation would come perhaps later on. I think in terms of market indicators, those that are more revealing right now are those of the perceived likelihood of default. And here I'm thinking in particular of sovereign bond spreads. For example, if you look at some of the highly indebted European countries, sovereign bond spreads have already risen by 100 or 200 basis points over the past few months. And clearly that suggests that perceived likelihood of default is increasing in some cases. So preserving investor confidence in the credit worthiness of the government is certainly key to prevent a complete meltdown of the financial and economic system. But I would say it's also crucial to ensure that the stimulus itself is effective because if investors start getting worried that the government is not going to be able to service its debt, interest rates go up, that's going to reduce investment, it's going to reduce consumption, and therefore it's going to undermine the fiscal stimulus. So for the stimulus to be effective, we need to preserve confidence in, in the government finances. And how do you do that? Uh, well, uh, first, you provide stimulus where appropriate, but you also make sure that the stimulus consists as much as possible of temporary measures. Then you can use a medium-term fiscal framework. Uh, and what is that? It's a plan of action for fiscal policy over the next few years. Typically, this would envisage a path for the debt-to-GDP ratio uh, to stabilize that ratio or, even better, to return it to a lower level. To the extent that you can, you can 
pursue growth-enhancing reforms because if growth doesn't pick up, then we're not going to uh, reduce the debt-to-GDP ratio. In fact, historically, faster growth has been key to reducing debt-to-GDP ratios. What can you do in practice? For example, in fiscal policy, you can think about broadening the tax base. This may even create some room for some reduction in tax rates, and that in turn would stimulate economic growth. And finally, but I would say most important from the point of view of sustainability, and unfortunately also the most politically difficult, you commit to a strategy to contain the increase in spending related to aging. So, for example, you undertake pension reform, you increase the retirement age. Now, increasing the retirement age is obviously something that would be very politically difficult, but it's just as an example of something that would signal that while we're providing fiscal stimulus, we are committed to gradually bring back the public finances to a sustainable position. What about in China and, and the United States? These issues exist. China, I think, perhaps needs more public spending on, on social networks, and the U.S. is facing clearly some pressures from Medicare and Social Security. Let me go to Steve Ferson. You talked about a, you know, a double effect in China of these programs. What are they? As we see, one of the key challenges for China is to rebalance growth over time. So when we look at the fiscal stimulus measures, the double payoff, one payoff is the straightforward, the immediate impact on growth, but then it's this, the second payoff that might be more difficult to understand, and the second payoff relates to the rebalancing of growth over time. Maybe to give a sense, the, in China, basically consumption is being held back by people's uncertainties about their economic future. So, for example, they may save to insure themselves against these uncertainties, something that we like to call precautionary savings. Maybe a more concrete example, let's take health care. Under the existing system in China, in many cases, individuals are responsible for a large share of their medical expenses, expenses that could be really quite big if a family member gets ill. The family, therefore, tries to self-insure against this risk by building up savings to pay for these hospital bills. But building up savings is another way of saying consuming less. So if we strengthen the healthcare system in China, this could lead to a lasting increase in consumption by reducing this need for precautionary savings. So this is the, the second part, if you will, of the double payoff. Charlie, in the United States, the problem has not typically been underconsumption, as in China, but too much consumption and too little savings. Talk me through the long-run issues such as Social Security, pension programs, and Medicare that will require the U.S. to divert income from consumption to savings. Well, I'll tell you, Jim, the big, uh, the big challenge there is really going to be on the, uh, the Medicare and Medicaid front, and uh, there's some pretty startling figures that come out of the Congressional Budget Office analysis that was published in the middle of last year, which I think are, I think are worth mentioning. So last year, or two years ago, 2007, about 4% of GDP was spent by the federal government on Medicare and Medicaid combined, um, but that's going to snowball pretty rapidly over the coming uh, decades. By 2050, that's going to be 12% of GDP, so quadrupled as a share of, uh, of U.S. income and expenditure. Then it'll go up to 19% of GDP by 2082. And some of this is related to population aging, as uh, was mentioned earlier by Paulo. So we have more and more older people who are more in need of medical care. But a lot of it has to do with a very rapid rate of uh, growth of uh, health care spending uh, generally in the economy. Now, the, the good news on this is that in the FY 2010 budget proposal uh, put forward by uh, President Obama last month, 
there's no one that makes a down payment for health care reform. So it establishes a reserve fund that's off budget, partly financed by savings on health care, uh, partly by limits on high income groups, uh, itemized deductions. And uh, that's expected to accumulate some $630 billion over the next 10 years, which is about half of what would be expected to be needed for comprehensive reform. So while it's fair to say there's still a, a fair chunk of heavy lifting to be done in dealing with entitlement reforms, which are just the issues you mentioned, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, um, it looks like under the current budget proposal a pretty good start would be made. Thank you. Well, let me again thank Paula Morrow, Charlie Kramer, and Steve Barnett for being with us today. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next month to explore another aspect of the global economic crisis with experts from the International Monetary Fund.